Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We have heard a lot about North Korea, potential nuclear war. We've heard about increasing unrest in the Middle East. So it came as kind of a surprise to me anyway that Admiral James Stavridis, who's dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and uh, also was a retired U.S. Navy admiral and former military commando of NATO, he views the biggest threat right now, global warming and climate change. Uh, he joins us now. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much for being with us. Can you explain? I, I was surprised by this. Yeah, I think here we have to differentiate between tactical threats, which kind of loom at us in the minute to minute. That would be North Korea, Iran, Russia's activities around the world, especially in cyber. Those tactical threats are very pressing. But long term, the strategic threat that I am very concerned about is global warming. And I'll tell you why. You know, first of all, it contributes to the tactical threats, drought, fires, famine, all these things fuel insecurity. Secondly, as sea levels rise, we're going to lose valuable parts of the coastline, and particularly in the Arctic, we're going to see rising tension as the polar caps melt and great powers collide up there competing for hydrocarbons. And third and finally, extreme weather. You know, we've just been through a cycle, a trifecta, if you will, of terrible hurricanes. All of that drains our readiness. It's going to get worse and worse if we don't address it now. Well, what role does the defense community have in this? Because we've noted mm -hmm. in the defense appropriations bill, there's a lot of mention of the effects of climate change. In fact, James Mattis, the secretary of defense, uh, seems to concur in your thoughts. And just to give an example, you know, there's an Air Force radar installation that's on the Marshall Islands. And I think it cost about a billion dollars and right. it's projected to be underwater within 20 years. Exactly. So I'll tell you the two big things the military can do. The first is is very prosaic, and it is that the Department of Defense is the largest enterprise in the world. It's a 700 billion uh, 4 million person enterprise. So simply addressing uh, our own carbon footprint, our own emissions, our own ability to transfer from hydrocarbons to renewables is a not insignificant contribution. And then secondly, what the military can do is prepare. As we look at uh, the potential for increased conflict, we look at uh, reactions to extreme weather, we look at um, resources being drained away from the military. I think the military has a strategic planning role. And again, this is why I'm advocating paying attention to this now, this is one of those problems from hell that you can get by day to day now, but if you don't address it when the problem really hits in half a century, it's too late. 
Admiral, a problem in hell uh, it may become, uh, so too would be nuclear war. And and I do want to get your uh, thoughts on shorter term tactical threats, in particular Mm -hmm. North Korea. In an interview uh, that President Trump did with The Wall Street Journal, he said that he has actually developed a positive relationship with North Korea's leader, despite their mutual public insults. Uh, Quote, I probably have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un. I have relationships with people. I think you people are surprised. What do you make of that? Um, It's perplexing. Uh, I I think the most uh, incharitable uh, analysis of it would be that President Trump is developing an imaginary friend who visits him at night in the White House. Um, Let's hope not. Uh, let's let's say for a second that it was a rational comment that he made. Um, the only thing I could think that he's alluding to is some level of back channel communication. But you know, I talked to a lot of people in Washington. The uh, the head of the United Nations delegation is a good friend of mine. I think I'm fairly plugged into this, and I don't see those back channel communications. So I think it's quite perplexing. Now we ought to remember that life is kind of compared to what. And compared to throwing out juvenile insults, my button is bigger than your button, or uh, little rocket man, etc., this is probably better and keeps us on that narrow sliver of hope we have toward a diplomatic resolution. Well, you know, as you have noted in the past in your books, The Accidental uh, Admiral, describing your 37-year career, uh, career of service, for which, of course, the nation is, is grateful, uh, Thank you. you have, of course, uh, really put together a, a look at the histor- history and the, the geopolitics of oceans, of sea lanes. What is the mm-hmm. most uh, critical sea lane right now, and how is the United States dealing with it? The most critical sea passage, I would say, is the South China Sea, because here you see the confluence of another major strategic challenge for the United States, and that's the rise of China. I don't think we're headed for war with China, but we've got a serious strategic competitor, and China's objective is to dominate the South China Sea, which is a vast area about the size of the Gulf of Mexico, and they claim it as territorial sea. It's full of hydrocarbons, natural gas and oil, and it is bounded by a group of nations that are allies, friends, and partners to the United States. So we need to be mindful of the fact that we're a Pacific power, a maritime power. We need to operate in those waters. We're not going to go to war with China, but if we simply drift away, pun intended, uh, that water space will be dominated by China. We'll, We'll be very, very disadvantaged strategically in another 50 years if that occurs. Based on what you know about the players and the countries in that region, do you believe that American allies are beginning to doubt the resolve of the United States to play a meaningful role in the area? I think that there is um, questioning of the uh, seriousness of the president, frankly, personally, um, because of the tweets, because of this recent uh, brouhaha over his foul language in the White House. Individually, each of those things would not be necessarily terrible, but when you add them up, it creates a lot of confusion on the part of our allies. Here's the good news. He's still surrounded by a coterie of very capable national security advisors, uh, General Mattis over its defense and General McMaster in the White House, National Security Advisor, General Kelly in the White House. These are serious security professionals. I think they'll keep us on a fairly 
even course, but um, our allies are concerned, and it's becoming an, a kind of endless game of reassurance on the part of those other officials to go to the region and uh, set things to right. I think we'll have to do more of that if we're going to be regarded seriously in the Pacific. Admiral, real quick, 10 seconds. Do those qualified people around President Trump understand the threat of climate change? They do. And uh, look at the statements by uh, General Jim Mattis when he was a four-star general. He understands it very well. Thank you very much for being with us. Admiral uh, James Stavridis retired. He is the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at uh, Tufts University. He is also a Bloomberg View columnist. J.P. Morgan Chase releasing their quarterly report today. The biggest bank by uh, biggest U.S. bank by assets reporting net income of about four and a quarter billion dollars. That was down nearly forty percent from a year earlier, but it has to do with a nearly two and a half billion dollar charge related to the new tax law. Here to help us understand what's going on in the world of banking is Chris Whalen, the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, a pleasure always to have you on. Happy New Year to you. Can you tell us your thoughts and reaction to the report from J.P. Morgan Chase? Um, was it a bad report, as you said? I mean, it was down uh, because of the tax adjustment. But even if you factor that in, Tim, the, the large banks aren't growing very much. Uh, the real winner today was PNC, which had a tremendous quarter. Uh, they're taking share on the institutional side. They're taking share in the mortgage market, believe it or not whereas Wells and JP and Bank America are all backing away from that uh, consumer loan sector. So it's, it's really a tale of two industries is what we have here, Pim. Chris, you say a tale of two industries. It's also uh, a t many, many different tales baked into the same earnings report. Before I get to the idea of PNC and other regionals taking business away from Wall Street, I want to dig into some of the details that we learned from J.P. Morgan today. Um, a lot of different stories. We had, of course, the tax story. We had charge-offs, or the, not charge-offs, but the amount of money that J.P. Morgan set aside to cover credit card loan losses increased more than people had expected. You saw fixed Income trading revenues decline much more than expected, even after stripping out a one-time effect uh, from the new tax bill. What are you focused on the most, and uh, how, how should people really uh, be reading this? Well, I think most of the big consumer lenders, especially the credit card lenders, are a little bit worried about future losses. We've been going through a very, very easy period, largely due to the Fed. Um, so you've had you know, very. It's like we shifted the entire uh, matrix for credit, a, a full category, and a, a, a non-investment grade companies could raise money at investment grade spreads and so on. So that's part of it. Uh, overall provisions at JP were actually down slightly from the previous quarter, but you're right. Credit card is what they're thinking about in the future. On the trading side, again, it's the Fed. The Fed has put the entire a uh, fixed income market into a, a, an induced coma because they have all of these securities on their book and they don't hedge them. There's, uh, the mortgage market's down 30% this year, so you don't have interest rate hedging the way you've had in the past. This comes right out of the pocket of the street firms who serve these constituencies. And I think, you know, given that the Fed is not going to sell anything in their portfolio, this is very important. 
Uh, they're simply going to let it run off. Uh, we could have uh, subdued trading uh, volumes for the major banks for the next five years. That's what we're looking at, Lisa. Chris Whalen, talk about PNC. They benefited from some higher interest rates. So they could obviously charge more for their loans. Uh, also growth in the commercial lending business, but they also got a boost because of the tax overhaul. Yes, interestingly enough, it was actually a benefit for them. Uh, you know, there's two sides to this tax uh, issue. If on the one hand, you've lost a lot of money in the past, you have to reduce the value of your de- uh, your, your deferred uh, tax assets. On the other hand, if you had taxes you hadn't paid yet, deferred taxes, that's now lower, and it's a benefit in the case of PNC. So, you know, it, it, it's very interesting how you have to read through the notes. You guys at Bloomberg are very good at this. Uh, but each bank has its own story. You know, Citi is going to write off $20 billion in, in tax loss assets. Uh, but other banks are going to benefit from it. So it, it really is a, a very particular analysis in each case. Chris, you said that PNC benefited from an increase in consumer lending, and some of the big banks have really pulled back from that area. Do you expect J.P. Morgan and other big banks, Citigroup maybe, when they announce on Tuesday, to uh, say or hint that they're going to expand a little bit more in consumer lending since it has been so profitable? Not in mortgages. You know, PNC has actually been growing their mortgage business. They've been acquiring servicing assets, and they like it. Um, but the larger banks, you know, you remember back in 2015 when Jamie Dimon very publicly said he was getting out of the FHA market? Uh, today, there's only two banks in that FHA Ginnie Mae market, really, Wells and Flagstar. Uh, the rest of them have left because they don't like getting fined by the Department of Justice. Um, the other issue is profitability. Most mortgage lenders, both banks and non-banks, last year were barely making money. So it's a tough business. And Wells, Bank America particularly, have been outbidding for jumbo collateral because they, they put the loans on their book. They're at a loss when they buy the loan. But after they collect servicing fees for three or four years, it ends up being you know a single-digit kind of profit trade. That's a tough business. I see a lot of small banks. Selling mortgage uh, notes, for example, they can work with the, the home loan bank in Chicago, but they keep the servicing because they realize that it's a nice business if you do it right. But being a Ginnie Mae seller servicer is tough. You know, you're facing the government, and even though the servicing fees are almost twice what you get for a Fannie or Freddie loan, you make mistakes, you pay. And you're kind of in this uh, really difficult situation between the CFPB on the one hand doesn't want you to foreclose. And then the FHA says if you don't foreclose in 180 days of default, you basically lose your right to make an insurance claim. Yeah. So it's, it's a very complicated business. It is the lowest return asset for a bank, Lisa. That's, that's the problem with residential mortgage lending today. Yeah. Dodd-Frank tripled the cost of, of the industry. Chris Whalen, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Whalen is chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, which...
Right now, we want to focus on the bond market. Dr. Lacey Hunt joins us now. He's executive vice president and chief economist at Hoisington Investment Management, which oversees $4.3 billion. And he comes to us from Austin, Texas. Uh, Dr. Hunt, thank you so much for being with us. I particularly wanted to touch base with you this week because there's been a lot of discussion about longer-term yields going higher. We saw some action to that effect this week. And inflationary pressures that would force the Fed to hike faster and allow longer-term yields to rise further. As a longtime investor in long-dated treasuries, are you changing your strategy and do you expect this sell-off in longer-term rates to accelerate? No, I do not. Uh, There are many factors, far too many to mention, that um, allow allow the long-term rates to rise over the short run. But um, the economy is too fundamentally weak, and the pattern toward longer-term disinflation is strong, and so that while the rates can rise, as they have done this week, in my opinion, they will not be able to stay up. Dr. Hunt, you say that the economy is too weak. A lot of people think that the economy is fairly strong and accelerating. To what can you point that would sort of edify uh, this belief that the economy is perhaps weaker than people think? Well, the surface indicators of the economy are strong. We've had three quarters of 3% growth. Uh, however, the the pylons of the U.S. economy are continuing to weaken, and very, very substantially so. Um, most, most predominantly, as a result of the of the Federal Reserve's policies, there has been a very substantial slowdown in monetary growth at a time when the velocity of money is the lowest since the late 1940s, and the Fed is engaging in a program that will significantly slow monetary growth further, that being the balance sheet normalization. I realize that um, a lot of folks don't pay much attention to this. It's not in the news headlines. And the presumption may be that, well, quantitative easing didn't boost the money supply. Quantitative tightening won't, won't depress it. But the the underlying models uh, that have been verified over time uh, indicate that money supply growth is going to slow very, very dramatically, and that while inflation can rise from time to time, the uh, slowdown in monetary growth and velocity will mean that prices will move lower over time, not higher. Lacey Hunt. A bond market, a bull run for the bond market. I've been listening to people talk about the end of a 30-year bull market in bonds. Do you agree? No. I think the ultimate lows in bonds are still in the future. The path will not be easy. It has not been easy to get to the point where we are today. Another problem that the economy has is that although the consumer is spending, the the consumer has been left very badly behind in this expansion, and the consumer has uh, borrowed a substantial amount of additional money to continue the spending, which means because of a of the one of the lowest saving rates in U.S. economic history, the consumer sector is very vulnerable to business cycle risks. 
Dr. Hunt, are, have you been, I know that you're a long-term investor and you're not looking for uh, short-term moves to capitalize on, but do you add to your longer-term treasury holdings when there is a bit of a sell-off with the belief that longer-term rates are likely to go lower and possibly much lower? When, whenever we receive additional funds, uh, we invest them immediately, and we put them in the long end of the market, uh, just as we do for the clients that are already with us. Uh, we we don't want to be out of position uh, as the economy unfolds. There were numerous instances last year, year before, when the interest rates rose, but when night when 2017 was all over, uh, the the long-term rates actually declined. Now, I might say that we fully expect the Fed will push up the short-term rates. The Fed has that ability. But the long-term rates are determined by the Fisher equation, which which says that the long treasury rates are primarily determined by inflationary expectations. And it, recognizing that the Fed will push the short rates up and the long rates will not follow, the yield curve will continue to flatten. And this will this is a a a a cause. It is an it is a symptom of the monetary tightening on effect, if you will. But it will also have a causal effect. Dr. Lacey Hunt, Chief Economist, Hoisington Investment Management. Facebook shares, as my co-host Pim Fox was mentioning earlier, down more than 4% after the news that it would be making some pretty profound changes to the way people experience the social media giant. Shira Ovide joins us now. She's a Bloomberg gadfly columnist covering all things tech. Shira, just first give us a sense of how significant the change is that Facebook is making and just lay out the details of what the changes are. Sure. It's hard to know for certain, but it does seem like this is going to be a very significant change to how Facebook operates. So what Mark Zuckerberg outlined late Thursday was a change in how Facebook prioritizes what people see in the newsfeed and the mainstream of Facebook posts. And what they're going to try to encourage more of is they're prioritizing posts that encourages meaningful social interactions by by Facebook's um, understanding of that term. And that means things like, you know, posts from a family member who's grieving on Facebook and invites kind of long comments back and forth that will get prioritized. So will things, um, you know, news, news articles that generate kind of a lot of interest and back and forth posts. Uh, and messages from people. So that's the kind of thing they're trying to optimize for rather than the kind of passive, I kind of look at it and then move on kind of posts and videos. Shira, is this going to involve a technical algorithmic kind of change? Is this a technical issue for Facebook? Yes. I mean, this is how Facebook basically changes strategies, that they change the algorithm and the the algorithm, they change the inputs for the algorithm, I should say. And then that changes what kinds of things people are likely to see more of or less of in the newsfeed. 
Okay, so does this also mean that there are companies and individuals who are just as smart as the people at Facebook that will be able to figure out a way to work around this? Because doesn't the current problem indicate that there are a lot of very intelligent people out there who may not agree with the way Mark Zuckerberg thinks you should engage with Facebook? Yes, I think that's a good point. I think one of the lessons of the last couple of years is that there are companies, uh, people, and propagandists, including those backed by the Kremlin, who figured out how to game Facebook's system um, in damaging ways. And there are no guarantees that when Facebook changes their uh, the kinds of posts that prioritize, that people won't figure out how to game it uh, to prioritize things that are not the meaningful social interactions that Facebook wants, but uh, more of the kind of damaging but still engaging kind of uh, kind of Facebook messages. So yeah, there's no guarantee that this fixes Facebook in the way that uh, Mark Zuckerberg intends. And Shira, uh, Mark Zuckerberg even admitted that probably the changes would mean people would end up spending less time on the social media app. And I'm just wondering from a business perspective, how substantially could this cut into their revenues and their potential growth? Look, there is a direct relationship between the amount of time that people spend on Facebook and Facebook's revenue, right? Because more time on Facebook gives Facebook more slots to sell advertising, which is how Facebook makes money. So if Mark Zuckerberg is saying people collectively are likely to spend less time on Facebook, that likely means a hit to Facebook's revenue growth, at least in the short term. And it's really hard to know by how much um, Facebook's revenue is the result of many factors, and it's a little bit hard to predict uh, what's going to happen. But look, the reason the share price is falling today is because people are worried about the implications of people spending less time on Facebook. Well, just to give the numbers to offer the perspective, revenue for the uh, latest fiscal year, I believe we're talking about something like $36 billion, $36.5 billion, of which more than $15 billion is profit, net income? Yeah, I mean, look, the last couple of years, Facebook has been the tech industry's best combination of fast revenue growth and very fat profits. And it's, it's been an incredible story. But we've seen some of the damaging effects of Facebook's incredible business, which is it's become a place that people don't like to spend their time, or at least say they don't like to spend their time, though the numbers don't necessarily back right. that up. And it's become a place that's invited political and regulatory scrutiny because it's been such an inviting home for people to spread misinformation, fake news, propaganda, and that's what Facebook is trying to kind of um, counteract. Just real quick, it seems like uh, this is going to change uh, media strategies as far as how much they engage with Facebook since their posts will be deprioritized. Can you give us a sense of how big of a, of a change this is going to be? Yeah, this is big news for any company that is relying on finding customers or potential customers on Facebook, and that includes news organizations. And you can imagine inside those organizations today, there is going to be a lot of hand-wringing. They're already annoyed at how much they rely on Facebook and how often Facebook changes its own rules. And this is just a, you know another way for them to you know feel pretty annoyed at Facebook. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Shira Oviday is our technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.